Welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Good readings and salutations. Hope everyone is doing well today, and hope you, hopefully you are enjoying your holidays. Today, we were going to do a bit of a throwback and discuss um, something that uh, that occurred in the state of Washington that's pretty close to Dan and I, and that was um, got a lot of national news at the time. Um, and we are, of course, referring to the um, the issues that took place, the protests and riots and um in whatever else at Evergreen State College down in Olympia. Um, as listeners will know, we've talked a, a bit about uh, um, Brett Weinstein and uh, Weinstein. Weinstein, damn it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Brett. <laughs> Not to be confused with Harvey. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, uh, sorry, Brett. Um, we've talked a bit about Brett and Eric and uh, kind of what, what they've been doing and their points of views on things. And also uh, with Brett and Heather, his wife's uh, podcast, The Dark Horse Podcast. He's the one who created the Unity 2020 project uh, that we discussed a bit, and uh, um, I can't remember if you did, Dan, but I actually voted in the in the rank choice rank voting that they did oh, yeah, as well. Oh yeah, sure did. So, um, so yeah, he was at the uh, the center of what I think might best be described as a fiasco. <laughs> That's generous. Um, I don't want to. It, it's tough because there's so much that went on, and there's so much that under under that, uh, underneath the problems that bubbled to the surface. That I don't want to prematurely throw the students under the bus because you either agree with them because they're acting, in, you know, on, on behalf of social justice, and you're like, yeah, of course they did what they did, or you look at it as a bunch of petulant twelve year olds who were actually in their twenties, and cried about things and so i, I want to kind of thread the middle ground until until i can learn a bit more you know i don't want to um, overgeneralize but um there was a lot of crazy stuff that went on regardless of what side of it you fall on um there was a huge amount of damage uh, that was created by the students there was um, issues with the police there was issues with public safety not only did brett and his wife resign um with a what may seem like a large, but is a fairly small settlement, um, given what they were making and how they're supposed to live their lives. Uh, two other um, people on faculty and staff also resigned at the end of that year. Um, one was a, a professor and one was like a, an administrator. They both resigned uh, due to backlash. Um, and so, uh, and in fact, I believe the professor um I looked into this a little bit uh, up in, uh, from last year. She had done an interview and mentioned that she was still suffering from PTSD from all the, the negativity that she had received um, because she was on the, the pro-social justice side of this issue. She was against Brett, and she got a lot of online vitriol. Um, and it, uh, from what I understand, it affected her pretty deeply. Um, but yeah, so I figured we kind of jump into a bit about um, what happened we are going to have uh, Benjamin Boyce on the podcast in a month and a week, five weeks, roughly, maybe six weeks, sorry. Um, for those who don't know Benjamin, he uh, he puts out a lot of content on YouTube. I would recommend checking him out. But he did what I believe is the most thoroughly exhaustive report, investigative report on Evergreen in the world. I don't think anyone, including Brett or 
the individuals who were part of the social justice movement um, that happened there know more about what occurred than Benjamin does. He he was a student as well, and and he knows Brett. So, yeah, he the was idea. inside scoop. Yeah. And from what I understand, he was like a, a media and journalism uh, type major. Uh, we'll ask him when he comes on because he's mentioned it before, but I forget exactly. Um, but he was at one point, I believe, either a volunteer for or a student of the professor that I spoke of who who uh, um, resigned uh, due to the backlash she received. Um, she was one of the heads professor. She was one of the professors that helped lead this movement. And um, so I know he knew her as well, and he had a unique insight into what was going on because he would be the person who videotaped all the all the lectures and stuff and uh, all their movement, all their get togethers and things like that. And so um, BA has got a 30 episode um, breakdown of it on YouTube. I, I think it totals like 15 hours. Um, a large percentage of it is not him talking. It's footage that he's found online and it's mostly footage from the individuals who are participating in the sit-ins the lock-ins um the meeting with the faculty and the president um, or i guess if you're um, more cynical the uh, kidnapping of the president or the the hostage taking because it could be read as a hostage situation depending on how you want to look at that um he looked through i think he found probably every single piece of media online and just put it all went through it, listened to it, dissected it, broke it up, and then managed to put it together. And so um, we are going to have him on. And part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is beforehand is so that we could sort of get out into the open what it is we know about what happened at Evergreen, which is very little. We can kind of see how it correlates to now because it did happen uh, three and a half years ago. Um, and uh, then just kind of discuss some of the things we're curious about. Um, I want to, I want to look at this and m one of my personal goals, if we can do it today, and if not, I want to do it with Benjamin is, uh, I'd like to be able to effectively, um, steel man, the student's argument. That's what I want to learn from this. Is it, Fair I, enough. I don't want to go in cause like <laughs> I, I do having looked up what I have looked up and having followed Brett for, uh, quite some time. I do think that how the reactions to what he did were way overblown, and I don't think he actually did anything wrong. Be that as it may, there's two sides to every story, and I don't just want to write off the students as, you know, petulant, uh, um, irresponsible kids who need to grow up or you know something to that effect. I, I want to understand and get a better idea of, well, if I have to steel man their argument, why is what they did right? what parts of well, it are right you know i think we can we can also shed light on the fact that and, and brett breaks this down that within the you know the social justice movement we'll say um there are there are different types of players um so not everybody is on the same page within that movement and not everybody has the same access to information uh and or motives of the leaders of the movement um so it's 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 reasonable to say that good people can fall into a bad cause for good reasons. Uh, and we can get into that, but yeah, I know we've actually yeah. talked a bit about that before, um, with, uh, critical theory and like social justice ideology of which all of this stems, uh, directly from like the, a lot of yeah. what we've talked about before. Um, this is all going to sound for our listeners who've made it through to, to episode 17. This is, 
this is going to sound very similar to a lot of the stuff that uh, uh, we've been talking about and that I've mentioned I've read about uh, because it's all the same. It, it just This is what took place three and a half years ago, and we're now seeing in the actual public now. Um, yeah. This was at the time, and I actually remember this because I, I, I heard about what happened with Brett at the end of 2017, and the, the events that occurred at Evergreen, um, they started a little bit, I believe, before March, but um, there's an event that goes on in March every year in Evergreen, and, and it started in that Brett, um, in, in, in this case, he opposed, or he wrote a, a letter about him, essentially protested, and um, this was in March of 2017. Now, at the time, um, when I found out about it at the end of 2017, early 2018, um, all the reports and things that I had read about and the follow-ups had basically just stated, this is a college issue. It's not going to seep out into the public. Like, this is just an academic thing. These are just really that these are just college kids who, you know, don't know what it's like to live in the real world. And they're just kind of, you know, they're trying to hold on to the control that they have and complain about what they can complain about. And then once they get a job, it's going to change that kind of thing. This will never be allowed in the real world. And then now we're seeing, you know, uh, um, equity councils being, you know, you know equity meetings being uh, paid for uh, um, by big corporations telling white people how racist they are and how they need to proselytize um, in order to atone for their sins. And it, you're, the escalation has made its way into the public very, uh, quite rapidly, as far as I'm concerned, like three, three and a half years is not a very long period of time. Um, oh, that's super fast. Yeah. To think that it started at a small state college and as it, 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 I think it, it first hit was spotlit. I don't say it started because it's uh, as, as we've been learning about this, it's been going on for a couple decades now. Um, the thought process, at least. Um, but this this little event that seemed so extreme three and a half years ago has now um, saturated not only our country but worldwide. Um, so it's it's important. It's relevant. No, it very much is. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So first and foremost, Evergreen State College, I believe it was founded in 1965. I think that's when it was founded um, in and uh, it, it's a unique college. Um, I didn't pull up the data on this, but I have heard and I like I say, forgive me for not, but I've heard that it's consistently ranked at least in the top two most liberal colleges in the country. And it has been for like 40 years. Like it's an uber hippie school. They don't do grades. It's uh, informative feedback only. Their class structures are very different. You don't take like three or four classes a quarter and then switch. You take an immersive year long course with like four teachers that teach it one subject together. Which sounds absolutely amazing. It actually does sound really cool. Um, I actually would have really enjoyed going there, I think, personally, because I, I like I – it, so it's an interdisciplinary approach for anyone, any academic out there who's either has a degree or has studied an interdisciplinary study. It's really instead of just focusing on math or biology, you may have a year-long course where you do like an evolution – you have an evolutionary biology teacher and a history teacher and a music teacher and, and you know um, – someone who's got a law degree, a professor who teaches law, and then you just do a class with all four of them together where they all go over the nuances of a certain subject. It's super immersive. Um, Matt Gronig, uh, the creator of uh, um, 
The Simpsons went there as an example um, for people who would like to know who's there. Um, Kramer from Seinfeld went there. Um, really? I didn't know either of yeah, those. Mackle. I believe it's pronounced graining. I only say Graining. That okay, that, yeah, I think you might be right. It's forever mispronounced. Um, um, but yeah, that's two big names. I didn't Mackle, realize. Malcolm Moore also uh, went there. And so for wow, uh, Malcolm okay. Moore, I don't know if he's super big nationally. I think he had a couple of big songs. I don't listen to him, but I think he had a couple of big songs. But people in the Northwest will know Malcolm Moore. He's pretty big with, with the Northwest. I think he's global, man. Is he global? Um, no, yeah. Yeah, Malcolm Moore, at least, um, you know. Five ten years ago, yeah, and, and there's a few others huge. that uh, that have gone on to do big things, but those are the three um, that I come off hand, and they're all creative types. It's a very creative school. They have one of the, um, uh, they're consistently ranked very high in terms of um, preparing students for grad school, which is interesting because there's no grades, and so often, at least initially, from what I understand, they had a hard time getting into grad schools because they don't they don't they have like a small master's program, but they don't offer PhDs there. And so um, they have to go to the students have to go to other schools and they had a hard time getting in because they don't do grades. And so you always have to submit grades to other schools if you want to go to a grad program. And so right. once colleges started to allow them to come in based on recommendations, they started to realize that these students were really good graduate students because they were taught for four years to question things from different angles versus being, you know, I look at it through this lens and that's it. Um, anyway, so in, I believe, 1971, they started what is known as the Day of Absence. Day of Absence is a play um, that was written, and I'm forgetting the name of the the the, um, the, the play right offhand. I actually f stupidly forgot to type it up. But um, this fella he did he did a play, and the whole purpose of the play was uh, Douglas Turner Ward. That's the name of the guy, and the purpose of the play, roughly speaking, is. Um, all of the black folks in this town, they absent themselves from the town. So they voluntarily leave the town for a full day as a way to just showcase to their white brethren, um, hey, we're of value and we want you guys to see, we want you all to see the value that we bring to the community. And this is right at the, a couple of years after, um, you know, the Civil Rights Act passed in its early 70s. And so um, when the play came out, and so, uh, or maybe it was in the 60s when the play came out, but there was a lot of racial tension at the time. And so the play was just a, a statement of like, hey, we're going to, you know, absent ourselves and you can see that we're worth something. Maybe you should treat us better. So Evergreen decided to institute a day of absence in, in, in the early 70s. And what that meant is that at once a year in March, um, the um, students of color, students and faculty and administrators of color would absent themselves from the school and go off campus for a full day and have activities and do their own thing and, um, and whatnot. And then in uh, the early 90s, um, I think it was like 94, they also inst instituted a, a day of presence, which happened a day or two later, where the students would come back to campus and everyone would get together, the white, pe white people and people of color would get together, and they would have... Um, a get together where they would discuss things and, and talk about inequity and what they've learned and how to have better relations with each other, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's so far so good. Yeah. And that's been the thing that has been done for, since it started. Um, there was a, and this is what got Brett into trouble is that there was in 2017, the, um, day of absence, day of presence committee had decided to make a change. They had asked, um, they wanted to reverse the events. They had asked that uh, a white, the white people um, leave the campus, uh, voluntary, and they've, they've said it's been voluntary for most of the time, though there's some dispute about whether initially it was um, 
brought up as voluntary or not. And Brett actually talks about that a couple of times. He talks about how in the initial meetings that the, the faculty had that it wasn't made really clear that even though it was said it was voluntary, it was pretty clear that you didn't have a choice. You had to leave. Um, and so there's a bit of social pressure issues that come up, but they'd wanted to switch it and have white people leave the campus and then have the, the campus be for people of color and for them to do their activities. And then white, white people would have activities outside. Uh, mostly they had like an anti-racism workshop and like how to be a better white person workshop, things like that. And, um, so Brett wrote an email after, um, in response to an email an email that was sent out by the, the, the head of the, um, of the day of absence day, day of, uh, presence planning committee. Um, her name was Rashida love. And she, at the time I didn't look up where she is now, but she was the director of first people's multicultural advising services, uh, at, at the, uh, at the Evergreen college. And he, when I felt was actually a pretty polite letter, but he basically, and I can read the letter cause I have the email up if you want me to read the email for, uh, for, for listeners, but he basically was like, I, there, I have some problems with, the change and he explained the problems and he's like, um, you know, I, I don't think this is something we should do. Here's an alternative. Um, but this is basically going to be, I'm basically protesting and I, you know, there's a problem. And like I said, if you want, I can read Dan, I can read the letter. Uh, how long is it? It's not super long. Might be, might take me two or three minutes. Um, if I read, oh, if yeah. I, if I read Rashida's letter first, it'll be about five or 10. Um, cause hers is a little bit longer than his is. Um, but I think it might be helpful. That might be good for setting the context. Reading both? Yeah. Okay, perfect. I, I say let's do it. Okay, perfect. So Rashida Love, this is the email that she sent, and I'm pulling this off of the Washington State's the government website. Um, it looks like it's a, a legal document that's been housed. Um, there's a direct link to it. And so um, Rashida Love says, Dear colleagues, as you prepare for a much-needed break, this was sent on March 14th, uh, 2017. Uh as you prepare for a much needed break, I'd like to take a minute to remind you about Day of Absence, April 12th, and Day of Presence, April 14th. Day of Absence, Day of Presence is an annual two-day event for Evergreen students, staff, and faculty to explore issues of race, equity, allyship, inclusion, and privilege. Day of Absence is a day for community building around identity and conversations about issues of difference. We reunite for Day of Presence for a day to share ideas with each other as allies. Learn more about the history and mission of this annual tradition here, and then there's a hyperlink. The theme of this year, the theme of, this is theme, this is a subtitle. The theme this year is revolution is not a one-time event. Your silence will not protect you. Inspired by Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde is um, a, a black queer feminist uh, and poet. Um, just That's not part of the email, just as, a, as, a, as an FYI for everyone. Recently, many of us have been looking for tangible ways to commit to equity on both the local and national level. This year's theme challenges us to act, engage, and build relationships that build the inclusive community we seek. It's redundant. Day of absence, subtitle. On day of absence, you can choose how and where to participate. This year, we will have a full day on-campus educational and social program designed to address issues from the perspective of people of color. At the same time, off-campus, at the Unitarian Universalist Church, and then they give the address, which I won't read, we will host a full-day program focusing on allyship and anti-racism work from a majority culture or white perspective. Due to capacity limits of the space to our participants, we are asking those members of the Evergreen community who wish to attend the off-campus day, off, off day of absence program to commit in advance by completing the hyperlinked registration form. 
We'll be taking registration comments in the order of submission and we'll email you confirmation. Because of the need for a dedicated space to explore issues of diversity within each of these two perspectives, um, which would be the perspective of color and the white or the majority culture, white perspective culture uh, perspective, each program has been designed with a specific community building objective in mind. And because many of us are mixed and may not wholly identify ourselves with one community or the other, we invite each person to attend the program of their choice wherever they feel most comfortable. Please notice that in 2017, for this is this is in big caps, by the way. This is our, um, it's bolded and it's enlarged. Please notice that in 2017, for the first time, we are reversing the pattern of previous years. Our day of absence program, especially designed for faculty, staff, and students of color, will happen on campus this year, while our concurrent program for allies will take place off camp campus. Subtitled Day of Presence. The program is a full-day conference with keynote presentations multiple workshop sessions, lunch, and community activities attaches the schedule information about evening events will be announced soon. By committing to participate in DOA forward slash DOP, so day of absence, day of presence, you are engaging in an innovative and unique opportunity to examine equity and difference in an academic environment that truly exemplifies Evergreen's commitment to learning across, across significant differences. The DOA-DOP planning committee has created a schedule that encompasses the theme and make space for students, staff, and faculty at different levels of understanding and experience to engage. Because of space restrictions, some events will require registration, some will require tickets, and many will be free and open. Attached to this email is the schedule for the three programs. Please review and make your selections for attendance. Thank you to those who have already signed up. I encourage many of you to join us. Sincerely, Rashida. Okay, so standard email sent out to the entire faculty and admin. Right. Um, there have been more meetings before this, and uh, we can probably talk about that because Brett actually mentions them in one of the videos that we watched. But here's yeah. um, Brett's response the next day, March 15th. Um, not quite 24 hours had passed. Dear Rashida, and he he CC'd everybody, the, the entire, it looks like he CC'd the entire um, uh, email distribution list, all, fa all staff, faculty at Evergreen. Um, okay. Dear Rashida, when you first described the new structure for day of absence, day of presence at a past faculty meeting where no room was left for questions, I thought I must have misunderstood what you said. Later emails seemed to muddy the waters further while inviting commitments to participate. I now see from the bold-faced text in this email that I had indeed understood your words correctly. And I highlighted the bold-faced ones because this is what he's talking about here. There is a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated roles. In parenthetical, the theme of the Douglas Turner Ward play day of absence, as well as the recent Women's Day walkout. In parenthetical. And so there's a difference between voluntarily absenting yourself and a group or coalition encouraging another group to go away. The first is a forceful call to consciousness, which is, of course, crippling to the logic of oppression. The second is a show of force in an act of oppression in and of itself. You may take this letter as a formal protest of this year's structure, and you may assume I will be on campus on the day of absence. I would encourage others to put phenotype aside and reject this new formulation, whether they have registered for it already or not. On a college campus, one's right to speak or to be must never be based on skin color. 
if there was an if there was interest in a public presentation and discussion of race through a scientific slash evolutionary lens, I would be quite willing to organize such an event. It is material I have taught in my own programs and guests lectured on at Evergreen and elsewhere. Everyone would be equally welcome and encouraged to attend such a forum, irrespective of ethnicity, belief structure, native language, political leanings, or positions at the college. My only requirement would be that people attend with an open mind and a willingness to act in good faith. If there is interest in such an event, please let me know at, and then he gave his Gmail account. So I actually, like I said, I wanted to read the letter because a lot of what I heard when I first heard about all this and what I saw when I looked up follow-up from uh, um, like over the past week or so is a lot of people have like, I think have a misinterpretation of what it is Brett said. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now there's a lot of video of this. It's actually kind of hard to watch maybe because it's loud and, uh, and, but it also seems you read the email and it seems kind of baseless. I don't understand. He's been called a racist for this email and was asked to be fired multiple times yeah. by multiple people. He was shouted at for it. Um, not asked, demanded that demanded. he get fired. Like it, yeah. yeah, like I said, there's a lot of footage of this that was filmed by the people who were demanding that he be fired immediately. Um, I don't understand what about his email is at all racist. I understand. Nothing. I understand why it might, let's say, be problematic or cause issue with people who think that switching the day of absence, day of presence format is fine. Um, you know, because he's he's saying, I don't think it's a good idea. So he's just rejecting the idea. And that yeah. bothers people when you reject ideas. Um, sure. And then it's tricky because race is involved. And so um, that, but, you know, that makes it a little bit worse because what kind of a person objects to things that, that revolve around race? Um, but not, nothing about this I think is remotely racist. And that was the big issue is he, it kind of came to light that like he was protested and um, kind of quartered outside of his office and there was threats made against him. Um, though I should put allegedly there because I, I, I don't know if there ever really was, um, any proof that people legitimately made threats. It was just the police had heard that it had happened. Um, right. In I think it's safe to say it was a threatening environment for him for sure. Yeah. And, um, and so like I said, I, I wanted to read the letter because if anyone who's listening was like, oh my gosh, this white, this, you know, this white professor was like, I'm not leaving because people of color tell me to leave. That's racist. Read the letter, like, or the email, like it, it's not a racist email. Now that doesn't mean that necessarily his stance is the right one. Um, I can see people disagreeing with it. I've actually struggled over the last few years um, with understanding what the point he was trying to make is. Um, and a lot of the notes that I actually wrote up for today was my attempts to reread his letter, understand his point, and then write it out. Um, because on the surface, it seems like a weird thing to protest to me, probably to most people. And then once you, like a lot of things, once you delve into the actual issues that he's trying to point out, I get it. I get why he's protesting. I also get why it's unpopular and people don't like it. Um, and so, so that's what set everything off. Okay. Um, this caused huge issue. And the reason it caused issue is because it initially went out to staff and uh, um, faculty and like administrative staff. Um, I couldn't quite find exactly. And I'm, I want to ask Benjamin Boyce this when we have a month, I think he might know. But from what I understand, there were a couple of students who were part of the administrative staff. And so they were on that email. Students were on that 
on the faculty email distribution list. And so mm, they, okay. they, they read the email and then forwarded it to their friends who they knew would, you know, either they were aligned with or they knew would be upset by it. Or I haven't quite figured out if the, the, the main students who took a, took charge of this were on the distribution list or not. I, I can't tell which it was, but students got um, notified of this and it made the rounds through like the evergreen, you know, Facebook page or whatever that this racist professor is, you know, basically saying, fuck you to what we want. Um, and so we're going to protest him and, uh, interviews and stuff have shown that people, students of Brett, um, before it occurred, actually had weird feelings and thought that things were going to happen. Cause I think that everyone was kind of talking about it. It's a small college. There's not very many students. And so I think that, um, the info had spread pretty rapidly, um, between, uh, from, from, from that time frame, Right. And so, um, and just to recap, I mean, basically what happened is on the traditional day of absence, uh, they flipped the script and rather than a group choosing to absent themselves mm -hmm. to help highlight uh, a concern on a point, they then will, will, will be nice and say they requested that a different group not show up. Yes. You don't get to be here. And Brett said... Oh, that's not okay. I'm happy to talk about all this stuff, but you can't tell people not to show up just based on the color of their skin. Yes. Now, that's the gist of this whole thing. It, it is. And so someone might say, you know, you, you might, you might hit back with, you know, first off, it's just one day. And secondly, you know, is it really that big of a deal to ask the majority or the, you know, white privileged kids to, to leave someplace so that, you know, people of color can feel safe, but you, you can ask questions like that because the, the, the protest seems a little far-fetched on the surface. It's like, what is the problem? And yeah. like I said, this is kind of what I've struggled with for years is like, sometimes if I'm not really like in the mindset of this and I'm not looking at it, I'll lose the reasoning why Brett, or the reasons why I think Brett actually, and I think correctly, um, made his dissension known. Um, and it, it's because, like I said, on the surface, it seems like a reasonable thing to ask, but there is actually a fundamental difference between you voluntarily doing something yourself and then asking someone else to voluntarily do something. Um, and based on the color of their skin. Yeah. It, let's set the skin issue aside. Let, let, let's, let's remove race from skin color from it. And let's just kind of look at it as, um, you and I are, I, I'm, I'm choosing to do something versus asking you to do something very rarely are. And I actually want your input on this because I, I there's parts of this that I'm trying to work out that I wasn't able to articulate. And so, um, on the surface, it sounds like a good idea that no reasonable person would oppose, but See if I can explain this properly. If I voluntarily choose to do something, people aren't really going to object to it. Like if we're having dinner and I, and I get up to leave, like I'm voluntarily absenting myself from the room, like you may object to it, but what's the recourse if you object? If I say no, what are you going to do? Like, yeah, it's a free country. You can bounce. Exactly. But if you ask me to leave... That responsibility is no longer like 
if I do it myself, the responsibility is solely on me. Now the responsibility is on the both of us. The responsibility is on me to, to respond in a way that I, I get to choose and I bear the responsibility of my choice on whether I'm going to follow a social norm and agree with you. So if you ask me to leave, I leave or I say no. And then your responsibility is what are you going to do if either of those things occur? And it's a drastically more complicated situation, drastically more comp complicated. And on top of it is, is that latter part. What are you going to do if I say no? Well, I think the context is important. And uh, the fact that this is a, a college um, and it was about race. I don't think we can set that aside for this particular example. No, no. But because, uh, you know, in your example, uh, if I'm in your house and you ask me to leave, it's your house. Yes. Versus um, a college, which uh, it's a public college, right? It so is it's, public. It's state funded. Yeah. yeah. State funded public college. Mm. So you don't get to just tell someone to leave for no reason. Um, you know, I mean, they're, they're threatening the safety of people or something that's different, but you don't get to just say, Hey, you can't be here. Cause I say so. So that's not on the table. And not only that, but you can't be here because I say so because you're white. Yes. Well, that's, you know, that is kind of the exact opposite of what we want to, um, communicate and discuss and have a dialectic about when it comes to race relations. Mm -hmm. The very nature of race relations makes that a very, very key point. That, you know, we're, the, the topic of what we're talking about is things happening to people strictly based on the color of their sin, of the skin. Therefore, strictly based on the color of your skin, I'm telling you to go away. Well, that's, you know, that, that's not in line with um, trying to actually uh, create uh, an equitable environment for everyone. And I say equitable in terms of opportunity, not outcome. Um, that's, that's directly opposed to that. Yes, exactly. Um, now, the important nuance here is if you ask me to not show up and I say, hey, I'm not going to do that because I think that's weird. I disagree with your basis. And they say, well, okay, that's your right to do that. Yeah. And then you show up and that's that. Versus pushing back so hard that it threatened, literally threatens the physical safety of the person eventually. Um, and the, you know, the potential kidnapping or involuntary confinement of yes. the president of the entire college. Um, and because it, it's actually kind of a, a, a it proves itself in that the reason, part of the reasons why Brett would point something like that out is because it can lead to exactly what happened. Yeah, correct. And so um, I actually wanted to use a parallel. Um, and I want to see what you think of the parallel. But before I do the parallel, I I just kind of wanted to, to bring up a couple of things that you touched on a bit and um, that we hadn't quite talked about yet. And the big thing for me is that... Um, even so the request was voluntary. That's the first thing. And so people might say, well, the request is voluntary. Like it, they're obviously not forcing white people to leave. And it's like, true, the request is voluntary. But um, what did the people who initiated their request do if everyone they asked to leave doesn't leave? Like what if all the white people at the school, and this didn't occur, but let's hypothetical situation. And this is for those um, 
who don't generally think like this, one of the best ways to test theories is to take them to their logical extreme. That's actually how you stress test ideas. Um, I actually do this all the time, much to my girlfriend's chagrin. Um, we'll, we'll have <laughs> conversations and I'm like, well, and then, well, communism. And she's like, how did you get to communism? I'm like, well, that's the extreme of what we're talking about. So let's start there. You know, and then she gets all exasperated because, or, you know, I, all this, I, I make those jumps very easily. And, um, and it's because I think that way I try and go to the logical extreme. But this logical extreme here is, if this is a voluntary request, what are you going to do if everyone you ask to do this does nothing? Like, what is going to be your response to that? Because it it's mathematically improbable, but possible that all of the white students at the school, and for reference, about 75, I think 70% of the school was considered white. About 30, 29, I think 30% at the time was uh, uh, identified as people of color. And so not a small percentage, of course, a, a majority of the students. What if they just stayed? And that's the actual problem is that you can say it's voluntary, but they have to do something or what they are attempting to do doesn't work. And Brett had mentioned in a talk that he gave um, in an interview a couple of times that uh, while it was explained as voluntary, he said it was very clear socially that white people who elected to stay on campus were viewed not as non-allies and a threat, right? And that's one of the other things is that like there's this mix up of this assumption that if you don't agree with us, you're therefore against us. There's this absolutist nature, and it, it actually reminds me of a, make a Star Wars joke. But um, Anakin Skywalker, right as he turns to Darth Vader, he tells Obi Wan, "You're either with me or you're against me." You know, and it's like a Sith absolutist claim, right? There's no middle ground. And then Obi Wan proceeds to cut his limbs off. And it, um, but um, the point there is that that's an absolutist claim. It's like, well, if you don't leave the campus, then you're not an ally. It's like, no. Maybe there's other reasons, right? It's not just an either or. Um, but the the parallel that I wanted to make, and we've actually, I think we've actually talked about this a little bit before, but um, and this may be a bad parallel, so I want your input on this, is that um, when I was reading about this, it reminded me of this notion about laws, like laws that states and counties, countries, uh, principalities, whatever have. Laws are only enforceable, though, if there's a, critical, uh, a credible threat of violence from the state. Yes. And I want people who are listening to, to sit back for a second and really think about that. I don't mean that if you don't do this, you're going to get punched in the face. Like a threat of violence could be handcuffed and locked up into prison. As an example, it doesn't have to just be straight up, you're going to get beat up, but there has to be a credible threat of violence and incarceration. Otherwise, no one would, there, there will always be a small subset and that subset will grow over time of people who just won't listen. Right? I think in some states, I didn't look this up, but I'm sure in some states, there's no, um, there's no recourse if you don't pay parking tickets. Like there's no warrant out for your arrest. I believe, where you get sent to jail if you don't pay parking tickets. And so you have place, and you see this in movies, you know, where like one of the characters has like 35 parking tickets and never somehow gets arrested. And it's right. like, <laughs> my first thought is, wow, where's that at? And I, I don't, know, <laughs> like I said, I don't know. Um, I've actually never gotten one. And so I'm not entirely sure. But um, I, I do believe that this is the case. And it just seems like the kind of thing that would not have a, like, I got arrested for having parking tickets seems kind of silly. And so my, my I'm also assuming a bit here too. But um, the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that unless you're able to enforce things with a, th with a threat from the state, that laws don't work. And this is the same thing. Um, one of the issues that uh, Jordan B. Peterson uh, 
came up with with Bill C-16 in Canada is that as he as the bill was initially set up, you would be fined if you didn't if you uh, um, didn't follow the bill. Like if you said no and didn't follow the bill, you would be fined. But as he read the Human Rights Code and then um, like the some of the other codes and stuff and how the laws interact, he realized that um, if you didn't pay the fine, you would get arrested. But they didn't really have a law within within the bill to state that you would be arrested. And so his whole point was the one I'm making now is he's like, because they were saying that they wouldn't arrest you if you didn't pay the fine. And he's like, well, you have to, otherwise no one's going to pay the fine. And you guys are like hiding the fact that bad recourse will happen. And I think someone actually got fired for for violating Bill C-16, even though there wasn't really a legal basis within the bill to do so. Um it, it was extended to like a college charter um, law that they pulled from and then they meshed them together. And I think the person was uh, like kicked out of a graduate program or something as a result. And so my point though, is that this is very similar in that these things are only enforceable if there's some kind of a credible threat to them. Right. And as is anything, like if I tell you to leave my home, yes, it's my home. But if you don't leave, if I don't do anything, you just stay. So I have to like, I have to credibly have a threat against you, whatever that threat may be. Maybe I call the cops. Maybe I pull out a knife. Maybe I physically subdue you. Maybe I, you know, I, the cops come and pick you up, uh, you know, whatever. Maybe I light my apartment on fire and you have to leave. Like there's a whole host of options, (laughs) some of which are really absurd, most of which are absurd, but it's like all those options are credible threats to, to you and your well-being at the moment. And if I don't, it's literally in the name. It's enforcement. Exactly. And so it is the application of force to get what it is you're looking for. Exactly. And so if people don't, I think, I don't think realize this, but whenever you ask something of somebody, there's always an underlying threat of enforcement. There has to be. And this is why. Now, in like 99.9% of human interaction, that never comes to fruition partly because we don't want it to, or what we're asking each other to do voluntarily is reasonable, or we just don't care enough to, to, to protest it. And so this stuff never comes up, but it's the small times that they do that. If you haven't thought through that option, then what, what are you going to do? And the reason I bring this up is because if you do, if you follow anything about this evergreen issue, it's that what happens immediately after he protests, like within days, um, there are legitimate threats of enforcement to him. Um, he's shouted down and screamed at. He's he's encircled um, at some point. Uh, there's lit- I think ten to fifteen thousand dollars of damage was directly done to the school as a result of the student protesters. They were trolling the school with baseball bats, looking for someone, and that's the uh, that's the um, alleged reference to to Brett's safety. Um, the police- and by looking, apparently, it was they were going car to car. They were going car to car, and looking. like I said, I, I say alleged because. As of today, I, I still don't think anyone has been able to definitively prove that they were looking for Brett himself, but he did get a call from the, the police chief um, who said, you know, we've heard these that these threats are going on, that these students are going car to car. We think they're looking for you. You should probably meet off campus because we can't yep. protect you. They've asked the police to step down. And for those also unaware, there's been enough issues with the Olympia police and, um, evergreen and like police, police that are on campus and stuff that, um, when the school requests it, the police 
will step down and not enter campus, which they did multiple times throughout the protests. And so like even without talking about the threat of violence and making it voluntary and then falling back on that when people get upset, like, cause like, remember, like I was mentioning, like you might, a reasonable person might say to yourself, well, this is voluntary. So why is he, why is Brett making a big fuss? It's like, well, it's voluntary with a threat of violence. And then when he protested, there was a threat of violence and there was, you know, a threat of personal safety for not only him, but the, the president, multiple VPs, um, a lot of students, I think, were afraid whether they were both part of the protesters or they just kind of got lumped up into it because they were there. Um, it was a very scary atmosphere um, in a very loud and uh, um, poorly controlled um, atmosphere. And it's like, well, that's that's what happens. You know, when, when you have these these issues and so as voluntary as it may have been. This is this doesn't support. This is exactly what I would have expected if someone protested and the people he protested cared enough about what believed about what they were doing enough is they're going to violently protest. They're going to, you know, have a, a threat, a threat back and it, which is scary. You know, it, it's a very scary thing that it, it broke down to that versus having a conversation. Like that was the problem is like, they should have just had a conversation about this and been like, which is what he asked for the whole time. Yep. And that's a big reason why I want to steal, I want to steel man the student side of this argument is because. I've watched a lot of the footage. And like I said, this is the footage that the students who were protesting themselves took. They recorded themselves doing all of this stuff. And he recorded a bunch of it too. So you can see him in their footage recording them with their cameras. And so it wasn't like this was someone secretly recording this and taking it out of context. Just, and then they right, posted right. it all online and was like, look at this racist professor. See this 20 yep. minute video of all these students screaming at him when he tries to talk. And the whole time he's like, I want to talk. Do you guys want to talk? Do you want to hear what I have to say? No. You know, they yell and freak out. And it's like, this could have been easily, probably fairly easily resolved with the conversation so that they can understand what the heck it is he's trying to say and why. And you just listen to the guy and you're like, well, what about you as racist? Lest we forget he's a Jew. First off. Um, secondly, <laughs> he actually, so a bit of background about Brett, he went, to, he got, he did his undergraduate, started at a university of Pennsylvania and he actually left and transferred to California, I believe, Irv, no, not Irvine. Um, I think it was UC Irvine, um, or Santa Barbara. I can't remember which, but he transferred because while he was there as like a freshman, he, um, objected to, he like wrote a, an article and like, um, turned in a fraternity for, uh, disparaging remarks and acts that they had done towards uh, black strippers. And I've had a, a hell of a time finding out the particulars of this because most of it's behind like paywalls. Um, but broad strokes, fraternity, white fraternity, or a bunch of white people from a fraternity hired a bunch of black strippers to do stripper things. And then, um, you know, did whatever it is they do with strippers and, 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 and talked about it, wrote about it. Maybe I think that they made them do inappropriate, you know, inappropriate things. Like it would, it was a, a debaucherous atmosphere and Brett heard or was heard about it and was like, this is fucking wrong. And went to the school about it and was like, this is what these people are doing. You know, it's exploitative and bad. And he got like death threats from people on call on, 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 uh, um, in the school from the fraternity and other, other, other members of the Greek community and the fraternity community and ended up transferring as a result. 
He's like the only one who stood up for him. Yeah. And and that was one of the things his brother Eric said um, after he was, Brett was pilloried in the news when this first came out is he's like, my brother was the only person to stand up for black strippers at Pennsylvania and he had to leave as a result of death threats. It's like, my brother's not racist. Like he's the one who's trying to like remove this kind of stuff and he had to leave a school because he was afraid of it for his life. Yeah. And I uh, mean, well, you know, in, in, in historical context, the, the proof's in the pudding. If you think of the intense amount of social pressure and scrutiny and everything that came his way as a result of this, mm-hmm. um, and it couldn't take him out because there was nothing to find in a racial sense. Yeah. You know, he's a lifelong progressive. Um, his history will show as such. Yep. Um, you know, it's they were just straight up completely wrong about him being a racist. Sure. I, I, I do want to clarify one thing, um, to be fair, and this is uh, mostly from Robin D'Angelo, but just because someone is progressive does not mean that they um, can't be racist, of course. And uh, one of her biggest things is that her book, White Fragility, was specifically, and she mentions in the book, was written for white progressives who she considers to be the the worst of the peoples when it comes to anti-racism and white fragility and, um, you know, trying to be someone who's not racist, um, which is to say that the biggest problem with racism is amongst white progressives. Uh, so to be fair, yeah, slightly tangential and I'll, I will, um, I I will agree with the spirit of that. However, that falls into the, there's issues, there's issues with it, but I wanted to point it out there for anyone who might come back and, and, and rebut your point and say, well, what about, you know, um, Robin D'Angelo and her best-selling book in which she claims the white progressives are actually the worst. And so um, I'm not... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll refute that simply and just say she is wrong because she is <laughs> yeah. redefining words. Yes. Um, and you cannot have good communication when you do not agree what the words themselves mean. Yes. And if you are the person with the power to redefine words, then you can shape the conversation into whatever you want rather than what is objectively true. Right, exactly. So um, that. that. <laughs> so to end the little bit about um, the voluntary issue, one thing I'd like to point to is that um, is the is again the response by the students. So he says what he says, and their immediate response is to not only protest but to do it fairly aggressively. And all of their calls are to shut him down completely, not listen to him. And um, there were numerous calls to have him immediately fired, like with no, no trial, nothing, just fire him. Why is he not fired now? Like you guys aren't doing enough, fire him. And so I wanted to pull your attention to the response, which is, then I'm paraphrasing here, but get in line with our voluntary request or there will be consequences. <laughs> and th- that reminds me, and this, this would be a throwback for a lot of people. I don't know who, who's going to catch this reference, but, uh, anybody remembers Chevy Chase, there was a movie back in the 80s called Fletch. And Fletch was, I believe, like a a private eye of some sort and uh, out doing his adventures throughout the movie. And there's a point where some corrupt cops are giving him a hard time. And, you know, Fletch is a smart guy. So, you know, he knows his rights in terms of getting under arrest like that. Uh, So they're about to arrest him. And uh, he says, what about my rights? He says, oh, yeah, no problem. You got the... uh, you, all, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. You also have the, have the right to get your arm broken by this guy. You have the right to get smashed in the face by this guy. And Fletch says, uh, okay, I'll waive my rights. 
<laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Well, yeah, and that's really what I wanted to 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 hit on um, to bring it around to on this issue of voluntary is that you you can claim that it was voluntary, so this shouldn't be a problem. But to just claim that it's voluntary, and not look any deeper, is it's intellectually dishonest, right? Yeah. Because because it assumes that they were in good faith making a, this voluntary request, and that the person who protested is in the wrong. And but their actions say otherwise. And I don't know, I, I don't, I can't think of the how the phrase actually goes, but there are at least one, if not many, phrases of something along the lines of you know, don't uh, listen to a man by his words listen to him by his actions, right? Like you want to follow someone's actions, not what they say. It's what they do, not what they say. Because right. people can say Your a lot of things. speak so loudly, I can't hear what you say. Exactly. And so, and so I want to point to that and be like, look, like, yes, it's voluntary. And yes, it may seem on the surface like a trivial thing and maybe even an offensive or at least a, a deeply prob problematic thing to protest. But based on their reactions, he obviously hit a point. Like he obviously hit a nerve. And what is that? And it's like, and that's where I distilled it to get in line with our voluntary request, or there will be consequences. And that that doesn't yep. sound so voluntary to me. <laughs> right? It's like, you know, um, how do you want to die? You know, like, pick your death. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it's voluntary, you know, and it's like, you get a shoes, sure. what's, yeah. the, what's the Cuban saying? It's like, um, by lead or by steel whatever oh no silver or lead silver or lead right yeah and so yeah. um something you know something akin to that like um and so i i found that part very very interesting as i was looking through this it it, it was like as i was trying to parse out exactly what his argument is because he, he does i think he explains it fairly well in his email but he doesn't go into depth and so you have to really pick apart the words he's he's using and why and so this is kind of what i came up with is and i'm sure it's probably different than what he meant but it's that this is a slippery slope. If you, you know, under the guise of volunteer of involunteering, you make these sort of changes and in the name of race, no less. And I removed race to make the compli to, to make the situation less complicated. If I, it's easier to explain if race isn't in the picture, you throw race in and it does, it does muddy the waters um, quite a bit. And you're right to point that out and, and to bring it up because then you're just simply segregating a group of people voluntarily. Yep with consequences. Yeah. And so, um, and the consequences of the problem is like, if, if they said no, and you did nothing, it's like, this isn't even a big issue, but that's not what happened. There was legitimate consequences and they were quite irrational as far as I could tell. And that's the other part, um, that the other reason that I want someone, I want to help, I want to help steel manning their argument is that the actions seem so much over, like they're over proportion they're disproportionate to like what happened. Yes. The email was like, you know, I, I have, I have an issue. Here's part of my explanation. I'm happy to talk about it more like, but I, I'm going to be on campus. And their response was to accost like a dozen different people, um, scream and yell at a dozen different people. Um, they held an entire meeting where they, they requested that the police chief show up, in civilian uniform, in civilian clothes without a gun, they wouldn't allow police on campus. Um, there were legitimate threats to people's lives. Um, I mean, it was just, it, it just went on and on and on. And it was a very disproportionate response. And in part, it was for things for 
legitimate issues. Like that's the other thing we've talked a lot about is that with social justice ideology is that there are legitimate issues at hand that need to be discussed and they're uncomfortable to discuss and they're hard to discuss and they need to be discussed. And then you see, I see stuff like this and I'm like, okay, well, that fifth sentence of the tirade you just yelled for three for three minutes is a problem that we can address. Everything else is just bullshit. Like you're just complaining about stuff that either isn't actually true because a lot of it, from what I can understand, was just fabricated. Um, or now you're just grasping at other things because you want more and you want more. It's intellectual sleight of hand. Correct, it's, yes. It's, that's what all the word games are, the redefinition of words. Um, that's, that's really the trick. Um, to make it look like a very reasonable statement or request yeah. or stance on a topic. Uh, but when you delve deeper into what their actual meaning is, it's not what's on the tin. It's not what they're saying it is. It's different. Well, yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And um, it reminded me a lot, actually, of the pe the peaceful protesting that we've talked a bit about that's been occurring for the last nine months. Yeah. Um, in that regard, right? You know, it's a, and we've talked, like I said, we've talked a little bit about it, but um, the violence and the destruction is disproportionate to, at least it seems to me that it's disproportionate to the reactions that they're reacting, like the things that they're reacting to. Yeah. Well, and it's it's such a small minority of the people that also true, um, yeah. seem to represent this. I mean, when this first started off in the summer, uh, as I mentioned before, I attended a few of the the marches and protests, um, and in particular, the the silent march that we did was fucking powerful, man. It was this enormous sea of people. I forget how many thousands were there, but uh, with you know winding around the streets, it was literally as far as the eye could see at a lot of points. Um, just almost deathly silent. And it was a really, really powerful statement. Stuff yeah. like that, um, where it truly is peaceful, can be incredibly powerful. But it's this minority of people that are, you know, for various different reasons, taking advantage of the situation, whether it be an extreme view on uh, the topic that's being protested or strictly just opportunism to go out and fuck shit up. Uh, but they're taking advantage of the situation to cause all this destruction. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, frankly, they're, they're fucking up a good cause. Well, yeah. And that's Nonetheless, what, they're there and we need to address it. Exactly. And I want to address, bring that up as well, is that uh, I think it's a safe, I don't know this for sure. There's probably some, uh, an error margin here, but I think it's safe to assume that the vast majority of people who are protesting across the country and the world aren't, are not the ones causing the destruction and the violence. Yes. Um, again, there isn't really a way to prove that, but, um, well, just by the numbers, you know, when, when the shit yeah. goes down, it's a small group of people right. doing these things, doing the looting and, and the violence and whatnot. Um, but during the daytime when the groups are large, then it's just normal concerned people. Right, exactly, exactly. And now the scary thing, and this is a bit of conjecture, but it's something I did want to bring up and Brett talked about in um, a, a, a talk that he did a year after um, the events at Evergreen, but um, there's no official record um, or acknowledgement from like the Black Lives Matter organization that um, they have any affiliation whatsoever with Antifa, which is 
one of the groups that's causing a lot of the mayhem. Yeah. Um, and in fact, they cause a lot of the mayhem and they're the more left weaning, left leaning, left weaning, sorry, left leaning um, group. And then you have like your proud boys and um, I believe are the main ones on the, on the right um, yeah. who also cause a large amount of destruction and should probably stop. Um, and I don't think the black lives matter organization ever would, nor should they um, unless they get enough power to be able to do so and recover um, claim affiliation. But there's been a, from what I understand, there is um, a decent amount of compelling evidence suggesting that, that that is actually what's occurring under, under the current. Is that they're Antifa's the militant arm? Yeah. Um, no, again, conjecture, smoke up up the ass. Like I don't, I don't know. Obviously, worth looking into. It's something that's worth looking into uh, for those yeah. of you who are listening and either and don't like either the movements. Don't take this as this is what's happening because I just don't know. Um, there's probably a lot of gray area um, based on how authoritarianism functions. I would not be surprised. One of the key features of an authoritarian person or movement. Um, or ideology is um, a tolerance for uh, to not only a tolerance for violence, but um, potentially uh, in a, a call for it. Um, this is one of the many reasons why Trump is considered he's, he, he at least um, has a lot of authoritarian traits. Stand uh, back and stand by. Right, right, exactly. And so, um, but yeah, and so Antifa is part of the radical left and they are violent. Um, so at, that doesn't necessarily tie them to the BLM organization, but it does tie them to the radical arm of the, uh, um, progress of the progressive left. And so you, you have that authoritarian issue there. And so they're there if need be by those who are more mainstream and can't control power. Cause no one's going to give Antifa actual power. You know, that, that, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, no. just like no one's really trying to allow David Duke to get any power though I, he did try for a while but i don't think he succeeded um <laughs> but uh at least i don't believe so i could be wrong on that so if i am someone could uh, correct me i don't follow him that much but um but yeah it's it's a very interesting conundrum to see the other issue that i have with it too um is that you know people have a lot to gripe about we, we've actually talked about this before like there are legitimate inequities in the world absolutely um, but a lot of the claims that I heard coming from the students and they were students of color, um, was about how all these inequities are rampant on evergreen campus and how the staff and faculty are doing nothing to address them. One of the things that Benjamin Boyce does beautifully in, in his, um, his YouTube videos is he'll, he'll, he has a bunch of like clips of them filming themselves, talking to people about how nothing is being done. And then he'll put it side by side with like an earlier video by one of them at an event, you know, in the past where faculty and staff are actually trying to implement changes, <laughs> you know, and uh, so it's like yeah. very clear that they're like just throwing stuff out there. And so that, that, that doesn't mean there are some problems, but they're like clearly fabricating stuff or they're just not aware of it. And so they're kind of talking out their ass. They're also in an area that is it, it's the most liberal school, one of the most in the country, if not the world. They're yeah, in it. They're in a hugely liberal city. Um, they actually referred to, I think, in some of their footage as like, is it's like a racist white city. But need I remind anyone who wants to go down a rabbit hole of like, uh, of um, feminist punk 
and uh, angry feminist um, history, um, the riot girl movement, and that's girl G R R R L was founded in Olympia in the seventies and the eighties. And, um, that was like kind of the, the, it's often considered like the rise of third wave feminism, which is like, I think is, is what just ended in like 2010 and became fourth wave feminism. It was sort of the, the initial push of a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And so like, it's, it's a big area for, 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 um, activism. And that school in and of itself is actually a big activist school. And so I have a hard time. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but I have a hard time, um, with this notion that that this city that's deeply rooted in feminist activism, deeply, deeply rooted, and like all of the most of the like a uh, at least a big a big chunk of like the really famous like moderately mainstream um, feminist punk bands came from came from that area, you know, like bikini kill is the one that I remember from when I was a kid. I actually listened mm-hmm. to bikini kill when I was a, when I was like a teen, but, um, but yeah. And so like, th- there's, there's enough things where I'm like, I don't know exactly if what, what it seems to me is that they have legitimate problems. They've dealt with some shit in their lives that that's problematic and probably it needs to be cleaned up. And then they go to school and then they learn about all of these issues and what it really means. And I'm air quoting what it really means. You know, they learn about systemic racism and, um, and microaggressions and how they're super oppressed and white people do everything wrong and they're holding them down and they don't have any self agency over themselves. And we can kind of go on and generalize or talk in specifics based on, um, what the theory represents, but, and then they start just assigning it to everything and then complaining about it because they know they can get their way because they get their way. I mean, the faculty back down, and try to implement yep. all these changes. And um, <clears throat> in a way, I, that it's almost predictable because not that I've been to college, um, but as I understand it, it's fairly common for like a first year psych student to all of a sudden start diagnosing themselves and everybody around them with all kinds of psychological problems. Yeah. Uh, because that's it's top of mind yes. and it's what they, you know, it's what they're learning. Rather than having, you know, a lifetime of experience to set proper context for things and actual um, like social demographic evidence and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it's very common for first year students of any sort, but particularly psychology, uh, to, quote unquote, start finding all these problems with yeah. with themselves <laughs> and all of their friends. That's normal. That's that's a pretty known thing. And it seems like, you know, this this could be a similar circumstance where. Someone who is in in comparison to the social status of you know everyone else in the country, um, let alone the world, leads a a the, the one of the most highly equitable lives historically. Not that it's perfectly equitable, but historically, it's been evened out more than it ever has been in the past. Um, but because these issues are top of mind to start seeing them everywhere and, and blowing them out of proportion. Right. Exactly. And your, um, your explanation about the, uh, the psych student rem- uh, reminded me of something funny. Have you ever seen uh, goodwill hunting? Oh yeah. So, um, the bar scene when, uh, Ben Affleck, uh, goes over to like talks to the girl or um, he's talking to the girl and that like law student shows up and he starts yep. doing the, he's like reciting from the book and stuff. And then, well, as one of the best scenes, I know I love it. Right. And, 
but as uh, Matt Damon like hands him his own ass, he basically is like, you know, oh, you believe this because you're in first year law and you're reading this book. But in second year law, you're going to read this book and everything else you just said is bullshit. And this is what's actually right. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's like you yeah. as you learn and immerse yourself into these into any kind of an issue, you tend to focus through that lens. That's actually yeah. part of the point of focusing on things is that you look at them through that lens. And then on the flip side, one of the benefits of an interdisciplinary study is that you come at it from multiple different angles because there's, there's goods at looking at things through one lens because you get really good at looking at things a certain way, but there's benefits. You become tunnel visioned. Right. And, um, you know, we haven't talked about tunnel vision too much, but that, that, that I think encapsulates for me one of the big issues that I have with social justice ideology is not that they don't point out problems because they do it's that they have tunnel vision about the way to get it done there there is no other way to look at the world it's it's our way or the highway you know yes voluntarily yeah, no, they, they have or, everything figured out if you just shut up and listen we're going to fix the world and, and, and it's a it's a problem of how they orient themselves of how the ideology actually orients the world um Near as I can tell, I think this is actually a problem of why of focusing on subjective truth over objective reality, um, because even objective reality, it's something that people can look up to and say, "This is kind of how the world is." My experience might differ a bit, but by and large, this is about what we see. You know, everyone looks up and sees a blue sky is a stupid example. Um, if you reject that, which is what the ideology does, and that's rooted in postmodern theory, if you reject it and you focus on the subjective, then your personal lived experience, your truth is what matters. But there's a problem yes. with that because there's seven and a half billion truths on the planet. And that's actually <laughs> true because we all are different. And so how do you determine which one takes precedent? Because the problem, as I see it right now, is let's say we get rid of objectivity, white people are still in charge. So if minorities want to actually get somewhere in the world, they have to figure out a way to make sure no one listens to white truths. Like, that's the problem that I see. If, if that's what the goal is, it's like, well, if we're if I'm still in charge as a white person, and I have a unique view of truth, and you do, but I have power, then my view's right. Sorry. And so... What One it, first step may be to write a book claiming that all white people are racist, and if they sure. claim not to be, that is only proof that they are. Well, right, exactly. And so the the next logical step then is, okay, well, you have to find out which person has the best truth claim. And that's the only way to look at the world, though. And that's what that actually is what happens, is that the, there are only certain ways to look at the world under um, you know, social justice theory. And that's it. And why? And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because if you don't do that, then everyone's way of looking at the world is correct. And so why is yours any different than mine? Right? Because if you have that, then what it becomes is, well, my, my truth as a white person is valid because your truth is valid. And so then you have to say, well, I'm a person of color. I'm a black person, let's say, and I need my truths to be heard and to be met. So black truths are more important than white truths. And then that's racist. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, well, then you're then you're playing the uh, the intersectional Olympics, which the where which is done. Anyways, you get a point yeah. for being black. You get a point for being a woman. You get yeah. a point for being lesbian. If you're trans, that's the ultimate trifecta, and everybody needs to shut up and listen. Well, right, right, exactly, exactly. And and so you play that game, and that's where the pro- that that's where it becomes even more convoluted and a bigger problem starts. But it does kind of the same thing, is that it narrows it down to one truth of the world. And 
and then you're kind of back where objective truth almost is where it's like we can't have one truth I, oh I, I hate to i don't like that term because there's many different truths but we have one objective way to view the way view the world so to speak it, there's a lot of things that we take we hold to be true because we've determined them to be true math would be a good example of this though math does change over time as does physics but it's very slow um but yeah that that's well kinda... it's I, I would say it's understanding of its mechanics yes. being math um may evolve but to say it changes uh it's important to realize it does not change fundamentally yes Two plus two does in fact equal four. Well, yeah, and so like th that's part of the problem that I that I see here is there's this tunnel vision, and of how to look at the world and anything else outside of it is just no, um, it's illegitimate. Which is, yeah. I might add, uh, the second of um, what, what is the second criteria for authoritarianism, right? Is delegitimizing your um opponents yes right that, if you can vilify them so much the better right exactly and so that's a big part of it is, is is it's like well what i say goes and you're wrong and it's not just you're wrong like think about what these these uh, students said about brett like you're a racist you're a nazi um not he's just wrong he's a racist and a nazi <laughs> he's the world's first jewish nazi yeah and you know he, he actually made a funny point in um that speech he gave a year later he was like um there was a lot of uh there was an article written because the um, patriots of prayer came up to protest his violation violation of brett's freedom of speech and they called it a like a, a nazi group from portland and i know nothing yeah. about patriots of prayer so i don't know whether they're right-leaning i don't know if they're actual nazis um from what i understand at least at the time they were uh, fairly ethnically diverse and not at all um that way but whatever the case he makes the joke he's like i'm the first jew to ever have a Nazi group protest my right to free speech. Right, exactly. <laughs> hey, I got to take a quick bio break. I will be right back. No worries. I figure we'll wrap it up once, uh, once you get back here. So I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got yeah. short time today. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the fact that 
this seemingly obscure event that happened three and a half years ago and the consequent talk that Brett gave about a year later about what happened and the predictions that he made of how this would affect society in general. And here we are from that talk two and a half years later uh, and what it is what you, that we are witnessing. Yeah, I thought it was his ability to diagnose the issues at hand and what he was seeing, I thought was very impressive. He mentions in the talk, and the talk we're referring to for anyone who wants to listen to it, it's a, it's a YouTube video. He does a, he does a talk at um, the Students for Liberty conference in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia in May of 2018, and it's called How the Magic Trick is Done. It's extremely informative. I've listened to it four or five times, and I still learn something new every time I listen to it. Um, but it it's very impressive how he was able to sort of die. He mentions he, he likes game theory. He's an evolutionary biologist, and game theory is a big part of how he diagnose, looks at the world. Um, and so I think for him, it honestly, I don't think it was that difficult for him to look at the system of what was going on and break it down into its constituent parts and figure out how it works. And for the listeners, because uh, Brett does mention that when you mention game theory, it may tend to trivialize any issue at hand. Uh, but the reality is just game theory is a way of looking at any complex system that inherently has winners and losers uh, by way of competition. Yeah. Which explains a whole lot of stuff, whether it be biology, evolution, it's basically uh, marketplaces. Yeah. yeah, it's anytime there are you know uh, competition for something or other in a complex system, then that's when you're looking at it via game theory. Go ahead. So I want to read a quote from a right w about his intro. He talked a little bit, like a minute in, and then about a minute into his speech, he said this quote, and um, just to give people an idea of. Um, how almost omnipresent he is. Um, <laughs> as much as I think that what happened at Evergreen is extraordinary, I do think what it is, is ahead of the curve. And if we are not careful, what happened at Evergreen is going to, is going to happen everywhere. And we really ought to be careful because as much as what took place at Evergreen was absurd and therefore in some ways potentially amusing if you weren't trapped in it. What it represents is actually quite dangerous, and I don't just mean dangerous even to the university system, which would be bad enough, but really dangerous to civilization itself, because the university system is where those who run civilization figure out how to think. And if we take the mechanisms whereby we train people how to think critically and carefully and how to discover, the th discover things that are true that they don't expect or intuit, then civilization is going to lose its ability to navigate beautiful yeah and so prophetic no it is very much and i remember um hearing a lot of well this is just it's just college it's just silly like it's don't worry about it and i mentioned at the top of the podcast you get out in the real world and they're gonna grow up and that's actually not what's happened what's happened is they've left the real world or they left college and went into the real world and worked their way up through jobs and then pushed until they could make change and now you're seeing similar things manifest itself through corporations and the government um, across the country and um, in, in, in different ways. And, um, and we can, mostly because I don't have time and I want to do more research, but that actually should be a bit of a, a podcast in and of itself 
um, kind of trying to go through and pull the parallels. If you don't read enough into it, it might be hard to like actually make the parallels, but there are a large number of things that go on right now that are, um, you know, that, that, that are basically carbon copies of what occurred at Evergreen yeah. in, in it, it's, um, in it's, it's under the guise of racial justice. That's the scary thing. Yes. Um, a, a, the fact that it's a false pretense, it's not really, really about racial justice. Um, but more importantly to me, it is fucking up the cause of actual racial justice. Well, yeah. One of the things that Brett mentioned, um, and I thought that this was very interesting is, um, one of the things he said around the time of the incidents is he said that um, he actually thought that what the movement at Evergreen, the people who were actually driving the agenda, what they actually wanted wasn't equity. They wanted black supremacy. Yep. And he said that he was challenged well over two dozen times on this for understandably, like who wants to talk about how black supremacy is a thing. Like that's an uncomfortable thing to think about, especially in a time of racial injustice towards blacks. Right. He said he, two dozen times he was challenged on this, but he said that none of the people who challenged him on this argued that what they had seen wasn't black supremacy. They just told him that the phrase was impolite. It was an impolite way to describe what was going on. Yeah. So they didn't challenge, so revealing. they didn't challenge his claim. They challenged the words he used. Like, it's rude to use black supremacy, not, well, that's, here's why it's wrong. Um, I don't know enough about the situation to also make that claim, so I will not. Um, but uh, I thought that that was very interesting, um, to your point about uh, not not really being about what they say it, it's about. Um, one of the things that Brett mentions is that there's like a PR campaign up front to tell the world what things are about, and it's really just a visage and a mirror to describe what um, things are not about or to, 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 to hide, sorry, what things are actually about. And, yeah. um, and we've talked about a little bit of this with other movements and stuff um, that buy into that ideology that's damaging. You know, that's one of the things we've talked about with the Black Lives Matter organization as, a, as, as an organization is that um, they seem to do under the guise of helping. They, there's a lot of things underneath the surface that are very concerning. Yes. And that's a problem for people like you and I, who would actually actually do like to support, you know, really anybody, but people, minorities of color who are actually dealing with inequities in the world. Yeah. Like I actually want to help, but I don't want to help in the name of Marxism. Right. As an example. Um, yeah. you know, and I saw, this is just an Instagram from somebody who I don't even know what, if they were in anybody or not, or they were just spouting off on Instagram, I didn't check, but they had made this Instagram comment. This is like months ago now about how they're like, yes, we realize that the leaders of BLM, um, are Marxists and no, no one gives a fuck. <laughs> Something like that. Like they, they basically were just like, we want, we just want to help black people get a, equity. We don't care that the leaders are Marxists. And, um, yeah, I just thought that was very, Damn, that's so dangerous. That's, that, that's the thing is like, <sighs> I just thought it was interesting is it's like, okay, so, um, you're willing to sacrifice, um, control to a demagogue or gog demagogues, you know, in the case of an organization 
in the hopes of getting your way. And that's another one of the hallmarks of of an authoritarian ideology or person or group is, is that, I mean, I'm reading a book, it's called How Democracies Die. And um, it's amazing. Everyone should read it. I'm like 30 pages in and like with most of these books, it just terrifies me and gives me nightmares and and I love it all at the same time. It, it's very, they're very confusing. Um, but they talk about, uh, um, and this isn't a direct comparison, so I want to make this very clear. I'm not directly comparing um, the Black Lives Matter organization to uh, Hugo Chavez or Mussolini or Hitler. But they do talk about in the book, those three in particular, as individuals who were um, all, I believe, were far. I know Mussolini and Hitler were far right. I believe Hugo Chavez was as well. But even if he wasn't, they were on the fringes politically. And they were given power by the political elite that were more centrist, um, mostly for um, those uh, centrist politicians' benefit. Like they wanted the votes, and they thought that they could control these individuals. And um, apparently a a German political guy was quoted as saying after Hitler got into power that he just made the biggest mistake of his life, which is, I hate to say funny, but um, it's darkly humorous. at this point, given what happened, but, um, that's one of the issues you run into is it's like, if you think you can control people with these kinds of ideologies, just so you can get what you want, that's one of the ways that democracies die. They don't just die because revolutionaries storm in and murder everybody. Like it's not very common anymore. What, what does happen is equally destructive is you give power to the wrong people and they slowly over time erode democracy. And that's a big complaint about Trump, and I agree with it. He ticks all of the hallmarks of authoritarianism, even though I'm not entirely certain that he's an authoritarian by at heart. I think he's more of an opportunist, but that doesn't negates the point. If you have the opportunity to be an authoritarian, it's very beneficial. So right. and so, he was taking that route. And so that's kind of the scary thing is it's like, okay, well, you're willing to give up. Um this kind of power to to Marxist thought and ideology with a little bit of postmodernism sprinkled in if you go down the critical theory, critical race theory route, um, and in the hopes of getting, there has to be a better way, I guess would be my point. It's like, okay, in the name of racial justice, let's turn everything into this, you know, Marxist postmodern utopia. It's like, it's not going to work. Well, the irony is it's the minority groups that would be the worst affected is that because they always are that's and that's the problem too yep. is it's like they're always the worst affected this is nothing new no <laughs> it, you know they say history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes and they're dropping bars right now yeah and it's it's like yeah very interesting but um those are my main th- i have more thoughts but I, like you mentioned i, I <laughs> we just scratched it <laughs> yeah that, that's part of the problem is that yeah. this is such a broad topic i can just keep going um i want to talk about self-defense we should do this again brett talks yeah. about self-defense and since you and i take self-defense classes in the form of greasy jiu-jitsu um that's a very personal one for me and probably yep. for you and that one's also very scary because it's a new lens i didn't think about looking at things um yep. there, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on um but yeah. And so uh, I think w- that might be a good place to call it. And then maybe um, next week or in a few weeks, we can do another one before we meet with Brett or Brett, sorry, um, with Benjamin Boyce. Um, yeah. Who's going to be an absurd font of information. Um, I'm super excited to have him on. It's going to be, a, it's going to be pretty awesome. So. Yeah. Heck yeah. And then before we go, I will give a resource because uh, Benjamin's 
uh, docu-series on the whole thing is, is as we mentioned, pretty long. Uh, there's a gentleman, Mike... Nana. Uh, Nana? Nana. N-A-Y-N-A. Uh, he does a three-parter. Uh, it's about an hour and a half or so uh, in length. Also really good. The, yeah, super, super good. A bit more digestible if you don't want to go down the yeah. full rabbit hole. Um, I would say, you know, plug that in. It's uh, the first one is part one, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying, and the Evergreen Equity Council. Yeah. Um, a pretty easy search there. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's so fascinating that it went from this obscure little thing happening down in Olympia to something that is globally relevant. So I think it's really worth paying attention to. Yeah, very much so. And it's um, it's grown in ways that people thought that it would it would not grow and for those of us who saw it early i hate to say myself because i i've done nothing but i at least was a, learned about it early on and was like i actually think this is going to become a problem in the future and it did um for those yeah. for those people who saw the early warning signs like this is this isn't just we're paranoid because we don't like authoritarian left authoritarian left right um that's not what this is about it's because it's actually, it's actually happening. And I don't like the authoritarian left or the authoritarian, right? I don't like authoritarianism at all. So there's yeah. that. Um, I don't care if it's lefty or righty. Um, I give a fuck. So. Dude, if anything, just check out how the magic trick is done and understand yep. that that video came out two years ago and it's talking about things that happened two months ago. Yep. So yeah, <laughs> it's happening. All right. Well, with that, everybody, thank you for listening to episode 17 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. Um, we hope you guys enjoy the rest of your morning, afternoon, or evening, and that you all have a good Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, if you or could, Hanukkah. Or Hanukkah. Or Kwanzaa. Or, or any holiday that uh, you happen to Boxing to Day if you're Canadian or English. Yeah. Um, whatever the days are, I hope you enjoy all of them. If you get a chance to see your family, that's great. If not, call them, tell them you love them. Um, spread some gratitude, some love, and some cheer throughout this time peace everybody beautiful take care